0: Thanks so much, everybody. So uh, as you heard, we are beginning a new series here at Spark. We just completed a series on the good news, uh, what it was back then and what it is today. And we figured a natural counterpart to follow that up with would be the series of Acts, uh, a series on Acts, which tracks the movement of the followers of Jesus in roughly the 30 years uh, after Jesus's life on earth. So whenever you're trying to wrap your head around a book in terms of you know by way of introduction it's really helpful to try to ask yourself what was the author's goal in writing the thing that you're going to talk about so it's helpful to frame this introduction in in the form of a question which is why did anyone write this stuff down why would someone write down what we find in the book of acts Um, there are a couple different ways that we can do this. One is that we can start with the opening of the book of Acts and see what we can glean from that to try to understand what the author had in mind. Another approach is to look at the entire book as a whole and look for themes and recurring patterns that occur in the book and try to draw from there uh, an understanding of what was important to the author and what wasn't and how the author understands that. So given that preface, today my goal is to introduce you to the book of Acts and orient you to the kinds of things that we'll be talking about in the weeks to come. So I will not have the answers to lots of your questions uh, right now, but, but you can hold on to those because there will probably be an appropriate time for us to discuss it when that particular topic or that particular part of Acts comes up later on. But hopefully by the end of today you will walk away feeling like you know what's important to the author of the book of Acts and that'll help you uh, every time you read more of Acts moving forward. A great place to then to start to accomplish our goals of understanding uh, what's going on in the Book of Acts is the the opening line, so the the first verse of Acts says, "In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach." Surprise! We're going to go through Acts verse by verse for the next several. No, I'm I'm kidding. Um, the, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are actually the, long, the two longest books that are in the New Testament. So that would be an especially inefficient way of going through this book. But I did want to highlight the first verse here because I think this actually does what we need for today, which is to provide us a controlling story or a controlling image through which we can understand the whole book. Because you can glean so many things just from this first verse. One, for example. Um, The the book starts by referring to a former book. So many of you are probably familiar with the fact that Acts is a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. That means these two pieces of literature, they belong together naturally. They have the same author. They were written uh, largely, you know, focusing the, you know, the Gospel of Luke roughly covers the first 30 years of the Jesus movement encompassing Jesus' life. And the book of Acts covers the next 30 years immediately following and uh, a second part that we gain from Acts is what the author was trying to talk about or write about when he wrote Acts in both uh, the prior book and Acts itself. And that is all that Jesus began to do and teach. I want to focus in on what it was that Jesus did and taught, because that is very important in the book of Acts. and It is very important to the author. Now, When you think about, like, when you're asking yourself, how does Luke, in both the Gospel of Luke and Acts, in this unit, how does he think about what Jesus went around doing and teaching? A great place we can start is early in the Gospel of Luke, in Jesus' inaugural sermon in his hometown in Nazareth, where he frames his entire mission for his audience. And this is what he says, quoting a prophet in the Old Testament. He says to his audience, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is how Jesus understands what he is doing and teaching. And if you are with us for our Good News series, this should seem very familiar because it's got those two major themes that we tried to highlight about what is it that the good news is about. It is about things that Jesus said. It's proclaiming good news about Jesus and it's doing good works in the name of Jesus. That is how he sets the tone for what he's going to do throughout his whole life. It is not just spiritual things as we often talk about. It's not just forgiveness of sins that he's talking about. He's also literally talking about poor people, blind people, people who are oppressed, people who are prisoners. Those aren't just metaphors for the spiritual condition we find ourselves in because if you read Luke and Acts, you'll see actual poor people, actual blind people, actual people who are in prison find freedom in Jesus. Now, this mission that Jesus sets out He does not consider it unique to himself because later on in the gospel of Luke, when he commissions his 12 disciples, he will use very similar language. This is how he sets the tone for what his followers are going to do. He says, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Do and teach. They go together. When Jesus prepares people to go bring good news to other people, he empowers them to say words about Jesus, but also to heal, to do good. Now, there's a, another uh, commissioning that happens shortly after that that is only recorded in Luke. And this is a, a larger group of people beyond just the 12. So this is the, the commissioning of either the 70 or 72, depending on what manuscripts you're working from. But it's this larger group of people. And this is what he says to them. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom has, of God has come near to you. Same thing. Jesus' own mission, his mission to the 12, his mission to this broader group. He's telling them, proclaim the good news, heal the sick the book of Acts carries this theme over because as you see the gospel beginning to spread outside of the area that's just confined to Jerusalem, you'll see that that followers of Jesus, they take that message, and they take that mission with them to these new or foreign areas. This is how Philip's, uh, This is how Luke, in Acts, frames Philip's understanding of his mission. He says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed so that there was great joy in that city. When the Jesus movement moves beyond just Jesus's initial circles in Jerusalem, it keeps that identity with it. Proclaiming good news, healing the sick. Now, the Apostle Paul, later on in the book of Acts, will have this narrative where he visits the church in Thessalonica when he's doing on his missionary journeys. And later on, when Paul reflects on his time in Thessalonica in his own letter in 1 Thessalonians, this is how Paul describes what he was doing when he was there. He says, our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. So for Paul to say he goes around preaching good news— he would say it's insufficient if it came in words only. It's not just things that he says. It's stuff that he did. And that phrase, with, uh, with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction, Acts uses that kind of language to describe miraculous healings. Those are the kinds of things that New Testament writers like Paul or Acts have in mind when they're describing coming to an area with the Holy Spirit and with power. So Jesus' own mission, the mission of the twelve the mission of the 72, Philip, Paul. Notice a pattern. These are, this is what Acts is talking about when it talks about being sent out in the name of Jesus. This is an important theme that we want to highlight, and it's consistent, again, with our talk about the good news not just being limited to this understanding that the purpose of the good news is to save souls and forgive people of their sins. I think a good way to highlight exactly what we mean about how holistic the mission of Jesus can be is in the concept of salvation, the way that it occurs in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Because again, I think that in a lot of our circles, a common way that we talk about salvation is forgiveness of sins, right? So it's this spiritual dimension. What it means to be saved is to be forgiven of one's sins. Now, the book of Acts is concerned quite a bit about salvation or about people being saved there are lots and lots of accounts of the gospel being proclaimed to people people responding positively about jesus and people being saved so it's important luke wants you to understand what the, what it looks like when people are responding to jesus and being saved but i don't want to i don't want to sell luke short because when he talks about salvation he is not just talking about this dimension that's forgiveness of sins. Now, very early in the Gospel of Luke, there is a story in which Luke says that um, Jesus encounters this sinful woman. And she, it's, a, it's a touching story where this woman who perceives herself as sinful in humility is weeping at Jesus' feet and her tears are washing his feet. And Jesus responds to that woman by saying, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, the way it seems that Luke is using the word saved there, the Greek word for it, it appears to be that he's talking about forgiveness of sins because this woman's primary plight, the way the story frames it, is her sinfulness. But then, just a little bit later in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says to a woman who has had a bleeding issue for 12 years, who approaches Jesus looking for healing, he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Now, in Greek, Those two responses that we've covered so far, they're identical. So what we call being saved, or what Jesus says is your faith has saved you in one scenario, is the same thing as saying your faith has healed you in another. Later on in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus is presented with a leper who is a Samaritan, he will respond to that that leper and say, Rise and go, your faith has made you well. This is what some translations say. Again, this is the same word that is used to describe saved or healed. And then uh, a little bit later in Luke, uh, Jesus says to a beggar who is blind, who he encounters in Jericho, he says, receive your sight, your faith has healed you. This is another pattern. You notice when Luke is talking about salvation here, that Greek word that stands for salvation, he is not just talking about forgiveness of sins, although that is certainly a part of it. Because salvation is not just spiritual for Luke. There is obviously a physical dimension to it. He heals people who are bleeding continuously for over a decade. And he can call that, when he heals that person, he can call it salvation. For a person to have leprosy and for that to go away, he can call that salvation. For somebody to be blind but then be able to see, he calls that salvation. And you realize When Luke talks about salvation and saving people, he's not just talking about spiritual things, he's also talking about real physical things. Do you notice another dimension, though, in the examples that Luke calls out in what it looks like to be saved? There's a social dimension to this as well, because the woman who had continuous bleeding and the man who had leprosy would have been considered unclean by the Jewish ritual system that existed in that day. That means they would have been separated from the community of the Israelites for as long as they had these illnesses. For Jesus to say your faith has healed you or saved you or made you well doesn't just mean that their sins are forgiven. It means that they can come back. They can be brought back in to society. For the leper who was a Samaritan, it doesn't, mean, it doesn't just mean that God is about healing people who are in the Jewish in-group, right? For a Samaritan leper to be healed by Jesus is Jesus saying, you are part of the community too. Your faith has saved you. A Samaritan can be saved by Jesus in the same way that the Israelites can. The sinful woman and the blind beggar also would have been outcasts or pariahs in the way that their stories are framed in the book of Acts. For them to be restored or to be healed by Jesus means they also are being brought in. Acts continues this holistic approach. So as you go on to read the book of Acts, uh, as we go through this series, I want you to think more broadly when you hear about accounts of people either in large numbers or in small numbers being saved, because we're talking about something bigger than just our traditional understanding of forgiveness of sins. In fact, it would be great if you were so conditioned to think about salvation broadly that when you read that famous story in the book of Acts of the Philippian jailer, So this is when Paul and his companion Silas find themselves in prison, and uh, there's a guard who's watching over them. And through this uh, crazy earthquake from God, uh, they're able to arrange a prison break. And in the Philippian jailer's case, when when this prison break looks like it has happened, he gets ready to kill himself because losing prisoners on your watch in that context would have been an executable offense. So he's afraid about what will happen. But then Paul and Silas, they actually don't escape. They stick around and they actually tell the jailer, don't worry about it we haven't left. We're right here. To which the jailer responds, what must I do to be saved? I think a lot of times when we read that story in the traditional sense, it's like, wow, all of a sudden this jailer went from thinking he was going to kill himself, and now he's like, hey, how can I be forgiven of my sins? And of course, I think that's part of it. Part of it is he, he understands what's going on with Jesus, but I think also he wants to know, like, literally, what can I do to not die in this situation? And Paul and Silas's response is, believe in the Lord Jesus, and he does, and what what happens is he is forgiven of his sins and he doesn't die. In fact, he and his whole household come to believe in Jesus and are restored. So, so it's these, you know, when you have a more holistic understanding of salvation, some of these stories about who's being saved and why in Acts makes a lot more sense. Now, one can ask if this is what, we're, if this is what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it means to do and to teach, you can ask yourself— how can I do it the way Jesus did it? Because he seems to have done it so well. If, if what Luke is saying is that Jesus' Jesus's mission is our mission, we do and teach what he did and teach, it sounds like the stakes are pretty high because Jesus is saving people from their sins, from their ailments, their alienation, and it seems like he even has a supernatural source of power that allows him to do all of these things. I think the Gospel of John, actually captures really well how it imagines this transfer of mission works. So the Gospel of John helps us make this connection that the church is the good news in action. We are doing and saying the things that Jesus did and said when he was on earth. So John 14, this is uh, towards the end of Jesus's life. In the few days that he has left, John records a series of discourses that he has with his disciples. And the way um, he frames this discussion is he is preparing to leave and he wants to give his followers what they'll need to move forward after he's gone. And he says, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. I read that and I think greater works. I was beginning to wrap my head around just the works that Jesus himself did during his life. And somehow in his parting address, he's telling me we will be doing even greater works. Now, it is worth unpacking in the future, like what it actually means for us to do the kinds of things that Jesus did that seem by modern standards of how the laws of nature work, what it's like to actually do the things that Jesus did. But for now, I want to take this writer at face value, humor them for a moment and say, okay, how do you imagine the church doing Jesus's works and even doing greater works than Jesus did? So for those of you who are familiar with this particular speech in John 14, Jesus will go on later to say, That the way he envisions his followers will be able to do these greater works is through the Holy Spirit. He says that when he goes to the Father, he can send the Holy Spirit to do the things that God needs us to do. And that helps us with a second major theme that occurs in the book of Acts. And that is the church is led by the Spirit. Over and over and over, when you see people in Acts fulfilling Jesus's mission in crazy ways, Acts will repeatedly attribute it to the work of the Spirit commissioned by God and Jesus. That's how Acts understands us fulfilling God's mission. Because the church is led by the Spirit, we can look at a couple of parts in Acts that I think do a great job of framing this narrative for us. So very early in the book of Acts, in setting the tone for what the mission of the church is going to be like, we find the followers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish high holiday. They're gathered together in this room, and then they have an experience where the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. And then Peter goes on to give the first, you know, what a lot of people call the first sermon at the birth of the church to the audience of of, uh, Jews who are present um, at Pentecost. And this is how Peter— describes what is happening to Jesus' followers and the Jesus movement in his midst. He quotes an old prophet to say this is talking about now. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on, on those days, and they will prophesy. This statement You could think about it as a charter of what the Holy Spirit is going to do for the church. This statement to me is breathtaking in a lot of ways. In one major way is in how inclusive it is. Because Luke has Peter in this speech drawing from a quotation that allows him to highlight how all-encompassing it is for the people who will be involved in spreading the good news about Jesus. Old and young, slave and free, men and women. And what you will see throughout the book of Acts is exactly all those kinds of people proclaiming to and responding to the good news. This is a deliberate choice on Luke's part to say this is who the Spirit is working through in, Jesus's, or in, the, in the time of Jesus' followers. And Acts and the other letters in the New Testament don't shy away from how difficult it is for followers of Jesus to really let the Spirit work through them and to be as powerful and as inclusive and as all-encompassing as this statement is. Because, as you will see throughout the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit gets some resistance, which, which is to say, when the Holy Spirit leads, we don't always follow. And that leads us to another major theme that occurs in the book of Acts, and that is the church is a work in progress. This is something that Acts is not afraid to say. It really is charting the life and times of Jesus' followers immediately after him. For the church in the first century, some scholars argue the biggest challenge that, that Christians faced within their own community was this question of, how to include Gentiles in what was clearly a Jewish movement. How should we include them? Why should we include them? In what ways should they be included? In fact, you will read throughout Paul's letters, this seems to be the driving conflict behind all of his writings, even in the book of Acts, even uh, in uh, other letters that are sometimes even written primarily to Jewish audiences. It seems to be a pervasive challenge that works out. And so you'll see throughout the book of Acts, This resistance towards inclusion of people who had not been included for so long is a major roadblock that occurs in the work that the Spirit is trying to do. I think the Apostle Peter himself is a good case in point uh, for this story. So I think we can walk through him as a microcosm of these challenges that, that happen in Scripture. So Peter, you'll recall, as we just said, he was, uh, he was there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. He preached this message about how the Holy Spirit was going to be working through all kinds of people in all kinds of ways to be able to establish God's kingdom on earth. And it seems like Peter should have gotten the understanding at that point then that the Jesus movement is not going to just be contained to the Jewish people. But we uh, actually uh, encounter Peter in this situation just a few chapters later in the book of Acts where this is a famous scene where he has a vision on top of a roof where God shows him uh, a vision of animals and he tells them to eat them and there are clean and unclean animals that he's showing them and it's supposed to be a metaphor for Peter that God now accepts both Jews and Gentiles and that he should too and that's how Jesus's people are going to be. So God has to intervene to help Peter understand this truth. And so in that same vision, uh, consequently, Peter is commissioned by God to go and preach the good news about Jesus to a man named Cornelius, who is outside of that initial Jewish circle. So Peter and his crew, they head over to Cornelius because he's been told that Cornelius is prepared. Cornelius is ready to hear this message about Jesus. And here's how Peter frames, or so this is how uh, Peter talks to Cornelius when he, when he begins that meeting. He says, uh, he starts his discussion saying, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And then he goes on to proclaim the good news about the risen Jesus to him. And then shortly after that, what uh, Acts records is, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Peter observing this then, he says, Surely no one can stand in the way of them being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter has an encounter with the Holy Spirit and with non-Jews that forces him to rethink the role that he thought Gentiles had played in God's mission. And it's based on what he sees with his eyes through the Holy Spirit that he can say, wow, full inclusion for these Gentiles, full inclusion, no question. Let's bring them into the community. That is beautiful and it's profound. It's also very serious in in the sense that, you know, when he says they receive the Holy Spirit just as we have, You know what he's talking about when he received the Holy Spirit? He's talking about that Pentecost scene that we just described. This is a profound realization for Peter to have, saying that what happened to us at Pentecost at the birth of the church to Jewish Christians is now happening to non-Jewish Christians, and he wants to accept them. That is beautiful. So you would think, after an experience like that, Peter is good, and his followers are good, and the Jesus community gets it. They get how inclusive God is going to be. But then you realize that that's not the case. We have, we have a letter from Paul in which he, in the, in the process of defending his own validity as an apostle in his own right, he has to, in making that defense, describe an altercation that he had with the apostle Peter. So keep in mind, this is after the time that Peter had this encounter with Cornelius. Paul has to say, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles, which makes sense considering the story that we just read but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So sometime in between Peter having having had this profound experience and Paul meeting him, because of the pressure and and the all too understandable ways we can fall back on excluding people we're used to excluding peter finds himself as a very distant person from the one who had that encounter that experience with cornelius and it's not like paul doesn't understand that it is hard work to 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 picture who or how God is going to be very inclusive in his kingdom. You'll recall Paul had to have a direct encounter with God himself to understand where the Jesus movement was headed. When Paul was on his road to Damascus in order to persecute more Jewish followers of Jesus, Jesus had to appear in him in a vision literally to knock him back to help him realize that Gentiles were not only going to be included in the Jesus mission, but that Paul was going to be the main person through whom that was going to happen. Paul learned it the hard way. Peter learned it the hard way. It seems to have been a really hard work in progress. And I want us to appreciate how hard God and the Spirit have to work to push all of us along, even prominent followers of Jesus, to help people realize these things. Because I think that there are, there are some beautiful passages in Scripture as a whole that really capture how God can be shockingly inclusive against our will. But we miss it because we take those passages to actually mean exactly the opposite. And let me tell you what I'm talking about. So there is this um, passage in Romans that I often hear brought up. I've heard this, you know, many times over the years in discussions where people are wondering, uh, like the, the question, the overall question is actually about how God can seem to be so unfair or how God can seem to be so unjust. For example, it'd be like, um, I just don't see how you can describe God as merciful if he's willing to only save some people and send others to hell. This is a common fair question that a lot of people have. And I, and I think what's tough is that a lot of times I've heard Christians give this response to that kind of objection. They would quote Paul, who's quoting Exodus, saying, Hey, what then shall we say? That God is unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, what it feels like they're responding to—it feels like the response that they're giving is— hey, it's not for me to decide that God is unjust when to you he looks like he's being unjust. After all, he can have mercy on who he wants to, and it's implied he cannot have mercy on who he doesn't want to. And then for the, for the follow-up question would say like, yeah, just logically, that's not making sense to me how that can be merciful. I think another follow-up quote that's often brought up, I think you should, you should be familiar with these types of say, Well, you can't understand. It's not about your logic. God operates on a plane that's higher than you. because He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord as that heavens are higher than the earth So are my thoughts higher than so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts in other words, um, it's up to God to be less merciful than you think and uh, Don't question it because he's a lot smarter than you are. Now. Here's the thing. Yes God can be merciful to who he wants to and yes he operates in thought on a plane that I don't operate on. But what these authors are saying in this, in this passage is not, therefore... God is more exclusive than you think he is. He's actually saying exactly the opposite, that God is more inclusive than you can understand. He is more inclusive than you think he is. So look at that Romans passage first. In context, you you have to ask yourself, what is the problem that Paul is trying to address that would cause him to say, hey, God can have mercy on who he wants to have mercy The challenge that is facing that community in Rome is the exact same challenge that's occurring in the book of Acts. It is a lot of Jewish Christians who aren't fully grasping how it can be that Gentiles are incorporated into this Jewish Jesus movement without having to become Jewish first. They're wondering, how can God show mercy in this way that he can fully include Gentiles alongside Jews? And this is part of Paul's response. God can be merciful to who he wants to be merciful. What's it to you if he wants to be more loving and more inclusive than he already is? He chose you out of love when you didn't deserve it. Why can't he do it again? That's what Paul is saying. That's what his audience is struggling to understand. The same thing happens with this passage in Isaiah where God says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. He's not actually saying um, to to Israel in that context, context, you're about to go into exile, things are bad, Uh, I know this may seem like I'm going back on my promise to always keep you. Well, it doesn't matter because my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. He's saying the exact opposite. After already explaining the way that God's people had rejected God, Isaiah, when he fully lays out the consequences that Israel will reap for what happens when you abandon God, he says, nevertheless, nevertheless. God will restore Israel. This passage comes in the midst of a restoration passage where the prophet is explaining that one day it will happen that despite everything Israel did and the toughest situations they find themselves in in exile, no matter what, God will bring them back. And in humility, one could ask, how does that make any sense why do I deserve something like that? How can God make something like that work? How can he restore something that's so broken? And response is, hey, I operate on a plane much higher than you. I got it. I want to be more inclusive than you think I can be. That's what these passages are trying to say. There's a quote from an author, Anne Lamott, who I think summarizes really well the challenge that comes with the way that God can be a lot more inclusive than we can, where she says, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out he hates all the same people you do. The idea is this, right? This This captures how... God is always—like, I think a lot of times on paper we, look, we will acknowledge, yes, God can be very inclusive. None of the people in this narrative and acts would have said that God was, was exclusive or that God wanted to be exclusive. But the challenge always happens when God starts including people that you are not comfortable including. This is a common theme. It is, it is how life is. We all do this. We view some people in our lives as more human than other people. We make these barriers where some people are the other. We don't try to understand them. We don't try to love them. And we, say, we mentally say things like, I could love that person more if they were only just, what, like me, if they only stopped doing things that I don't like, things like that. And that is the challenge that these early followers of Jesus were facing to say, a lot of them would say, I, I mean, I'd be fine with allowing Gentiles into the kingdom. Let's make them like us. And what Paul and Peter and other New Testament writers are saying is, nope, they, I have de-othered who you are treating as the other. They are in God's family and you should love it. That is how they're framing it. When you think about this this appalling Kind of mercy. I think they, uh, there's a 20th century British novelist, Graham Greene, who captured this too when he says, You can't conceive, nor can I, the appalling strangeness that is the mercy of God. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about these images of restoration. Deothering the other is hard work. It's what's happening in Acts, it's what God is about, it's what Jesus is about. This is what Jesus taught, and this is what Jesus did. So that brings us back to our opening line that we were using as a control for this whole discussion. One last thing I want to emphasize from this passage that'll take us home. That is, Acts says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. The word here is began. When you let it sink in, that the way Luke is framing the book of Acts is that the stuff I wrote before was the stuff that Jesus began to do and teach. That implies that the stuff he's writing now is stuff that Jesus is continuing to do and teach, even though he is not on earth anymore. So how is Jesus continuing to do and teach what he was doing in the gospel of Luke? And that is through the church. The last major theme that I wanted to highlight for us to keep in mind throughout the book of Acts, the way Acts frames the church is the church is Jesus on earth. We do what he did. We say what he said. We do it the way he did it. And we care about what he cared about. Because God can do big things while Jesus is on earth, but apparently he can do even bigger things when Jesus is enthroned in heaven and we're here on his behalf. Because when the narrative in the book of Acts begins, the Jesus movement is localized to a group of Palestinian Jews. But by the time the narrative in Acts is done, the Jesus movement is a multi-ethnic community of Jews and Gentiles all over the Mediterranean. When the narrative of uh, the book of Acts begins, only a few women knew about the risen Jesus, and they told a few of Jesus's disciples about it. But by the time the narrative in Acts is done, the Jewish establishment all the way up to the high priest will have heard about the risen Jesus. Greek philosophers in the heart of Athens will have heard about the risen Jesus. Roman rulers, governors, and kings will have heard about the risen Jesus by the time the narrative in Acts is done. When the narrative in Acts begins, Paul approves of the execution of followers of Jesus, and he's on a mission to hunt them down. When the narrative in the book of Acts closes, Paul is on a mission for Jesus, and when that causes him to be left for dead, he will later recall those stories and say, Hey, I consider it all a joy. How do these people come to act like that? Well, thankfully, someone wrote all that stuff down, and that's what we'll be unpacking together in the weeks that come. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for moving through us and in the world, first through Jesus and then through your church. We are grateful for the Spirit and everything it does, and we ask you to humble us, to be open to the way that your Spirit works and to find a connection in the way that your Spirit worked back then and the way the Spirit works today. God, please help us while we read and discuss the book of Acts together Help it to be something that brings our community together, that helps us understand our sense in history, how we connect as a church today with the church that we read about in the book of Acts. Help us to understand in more creative and better ways about what it means to share the good news with the world and to do good acts for them. Thank you so much for making us whole and being whole and being big and great and all-encompassing. Help us celebrate that today and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.